Part One, Chapter Fifteen of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain, by Charlotte Mary Young. Part One, Chapter Fifteen. Pitch thy behavior low, thy projects high, so shalt thou humble and magnanimous be sink not in spirit who aimeth at the sky shoots higher much than he that means a tree a grain of glory mixed with humbleness cures both of fever and lethargicness herbert norman do you feel up to a long day's work said dr may on the following morning i have to set off after breakfast to see old mrs gould and to be at abbotstroke grange by twelve then i thought of going to fordholm and getting Miss Cleveland to give us some luncheon. There are some poor people on the way to look at, and that girl at Fairview Hill, and there's another place to call in at coming home. You'll have a good deal of sitting in the carriage, holding Whitefoot, so if you think you shall be cold or tired, don't scruple to say so, and I'll take Adams to drive me. No, thank you, said Norman briskly. This frost is famous. It will turn to rain, I expect, it is too white said the doctor looking out at the window how will you get to cocksmoor good people ethel won't believe it rains unless it is very bad said richard norman set out with his father and prosperously performed the expedition arriving at abbotstoke grange at the appointed hour ha said the doctor as the iron gates of ornamental scroll-work were swung back there is a considerable change in this place since i was here last well kept up indeed not a dead leaf left under the old walnuts, and the grass looks as smooth as if they had a dozen gardeners rolling it every day. And the drive, said Norman, more like a garden walk than a road. But, oh, what a splendid cedar! Isn't it? I remember that as long as I remember anything. All this fine rolling of turf and trimming up of the place does not make much difference to you, old fellow, does it? You don't look altered since I saw you last when old jervis was letting the place go to rack and ruin so they have a new entrance very handsome conservatory flowers the banker does things in style there as norman helped him off with his plaid wrap yourself up well don't get cold the sun is gone in and i should not wonder if the rain were coming after all i'll not be longer than i can help dr may disappeared from a sun's sight through the conservatory where through the plate glass the exotics looked so fresh and perfumy that norman almost fancied that the scent reached him how much poor margaret would enjoy one of those camellias thought he and these people have bushels of them from your show if i were papa i should be tempted to be like beauty's father and carry off one how she would admire it norman had plenty of time to meditate on the camellias and then to turn and speculate on the age of the cedar whether it could have been planted by the monks of stoneborough abbey to whom the grange had belonged brought from lebanon by a pilgrim perhaps and then he tried to guess at the longevity of cedars and thought of asking margaret the botanist of the family then he yawned moved the horse a little about opined that mr rivers must be very prosy or have some abstruse complaint considered the sky and augured rain buttoned another button of his rough coat and thought of miss cleveland's dinner 
then he thought there was a very sharp wind and drove about till he found a sheltered place on the lee side of the great cedar looked up at it and thought it would be a fine subject for verses if mr wilmot knew of it and then proceeded to consider what he should make of them in the midst he was suddenly roused by the deep-toned note of a dog and beheld a large black newfoundland dog leaping about the horse in great indignation royo royo called a clear young voice and he saw two ladies returning from a walk royo at the first call galloped back to his mistress and was evidently receiving an admonition and promising good behavior the two ladies entered the house while he lay down on the step with his lion-like paw hanging down watching norman with a brilliant pair of hazel eyes norman after a little more wondering when mr rivers would have done with his father betook himself to civil demonstrations to the creature who received them with dignity and presently after acknowledging with his tail various whispers of good old fellow and here old royo having apparently satisfied himself that the young gentleman was respectable he rose and vouchsafed to stand up with his forepaws in the gig listening amiably to norman's delicate flatteries norman even began to hope to allure him into jumping on the seat but a great bell rang and royo immediately turned round and dashed off at full speed to some back region of the house so old fellow you know what the dinner bell means thought norman i hope mr rivers is hungry too miss cleveland will have eaten up her whole luncheon if this old bore won't let my father go soon i hope he is desperately ill tis his only excuse heigh-ho i must jump out to warm my feet soon there there's a drop of rain well there's no end to it i wonder what ethel is doing about cocksmoor it is setting in for a wet afternoon and norman disconsolately put up his umbrella at last dr may and another gentleman were seen in the conservatory and norman gladly proceeded to clear the seat but dr may called out jump out norman mr rivers is so kind as to ask us to stay to luncheon with boyish shrinking from strangers norman privately wished mr rivers at jericho as he gave the reins to a servant and entered the conservatory where a kindly hand was held out to him by a gentleman of about fifty with a bald smooth forehead soft blue eyes and gentle pleasant face is this your eldest son said he turning to dr may and the manner of both was as if they were already well acquainted no this is my second the eldest is not quite such a long-legged fellow said dr may and then followed the question addressed to norman himself where he was at school at stoneborough said norman a little amused at the thought how angry ethel and harry would be that the paragraph of the county paper where n w may was recorded as prizeman and foremost in the examination had not penetrated even to abbotstoke grange or rather to its owner's memory however his father could not help adding he is the head of the school a thing we stoneborough men think much of this and mr rivers civil answer made norman so hot that he did not notice much in passing through a hall full of beautiful vases stuffed birds busts etc tastefully arranged and he did not look up till they were entering a handsome dining-room where a small square table was laid out for luncheon near a noble fire the two ladies were there and mr rivers introduced them as his daughter and mrs larpent 
it was the most luxurious meal that norman had ever seen the plate the porcelain and all the appointments of the table so elegant and the viands all partaking of the christmas character and of a recherche delicate description quite new to him he had to serve as his father's right hand and was so anxious to put everything as dr may liked it and without attracting notice that he hardly saw or listened till dr may began to admire a fine clode on the opposite wall and embarked in a picture discussion the doctor had much taste for art and had made the most of his opportunities of seeing paintings during his time of study at paris and in a brief tour of italy since that time few good pictures had come in his way and these were a great pleasure to him while mr rivers a regular connoisseur was delighted to meet with one who could so well appreciate them norman perceived how his father was enjoying the conversation and was much interested both by the sight of the first fine paintings he had ever seen and by the talk about their merits but the living things in the room had more of his attention and observation especially the young lady who sat at the head of the table a girl about his own age she was on a very small scale and seemed to him like a fairy in the airy lightness and grace of her movements and the blithe gladsomeness of her gestures and countenance form and features though perfectly healthful and brisk had the peculiar finish and delicacy of a miniature painting and were enhanced by the sunny glance of her dark soft smiling eyes her hair was in black silky braids and her dress with its gaiety of well-assorted color was positively refreshing to his eye so long accustomed to the deep mourning of his sisters a little italian greyhound perfectly white was at her side making infinite variations of the line of beauty and grace with its elegant outline and s-like tail as it raised its slender nose in hopes of a fragment of bread which she from time to time dispensed to it luncheon over mr rivers asked dr may to step into his library and norman guessed that they had been talking all this time and had never come to the medical opinion however a good meal and a large fire made a great difference in his toleration and it was so new a scene that he had no objection to a prolonged waiting especially when mrs larpent said in a very pleasant tone will you come into the drawing-room with us he felt somewhat as if he was walking in enchanted ground as he followed her into the large room the windows opening into the conservatory the whole air fragrant with flowers the furniture and ornaments so exquisite of their kind and all such a fit scene for the beautiful little damsel who with her slender dog by her side tripped on demurely and rather shyly but with a certain skipping lightness in her step a very tall overgrown schoolboy did norman feel himself for one bashful moment when he found himself alone with the two ladies but he was ready to be set at ease by mrs larpent's good-natured manner when she said something of Royo's discourtesy. He smiled and answered that he had made great friends with the fine old dog, and spoke of his running off to the dinner, at which little Miss Rivers laughed and looked delighted, and began to tell of Royo's perfections and intelligence. Norman ventured to inquire the name of the little Italian, and was told it was Nippin, because it had once stolen a cake, much like the wind spirit in feats on the fjord. Its beauty and tricks were duly displayed, and a most beautiful Australian parrot was exhibited, Mrs. Larpent taking full interest in the talk, in so lively and gentle a manner, and she and her pretty pupil evidently on such sister-like terms that Norman could hardly believe her to be the governess 
when he thought of Miss Winter. Miss Rivers took up some brown leaves, which she was cutting out with scissors and shaping. "'Our holiday work,' said Mrs. Larpent, in answer to the inquiring look of Norma's eyes. "'Meta has been making a drawing for her papa and is framing it in leatherwork. Have you ever seen any?' "'Never,' and Norma looked eagerly, asking questions and watching while Miss Rivers cut out her ivy leaf and marked its veins and showed how she copied it from nature. He thanked her, saying, I wanted to learn all about it, for I thought it would be such nice work for my eldest sister. A glance of earnest interest from little Maida's bright eyes at her governess, and Mrs. Larpent, in a kind, soft tone that quite gained his heart, asked, Is she the invalid? Yes, said Norman. New fancy work is a great gain to her. Mrs. Larpent's sympathetic questions and Maida's softening eyes gradually drew from him a great deal about Margaret's helpless state, and her patience and capabilities, and how everyone came to her with all their cares, and Norman, as he spoke, mentally contrasted the life, untouched by trouble and care, led by the fair girl before him, with that atmosphere of constant petty anxieties round her namesake's couch, at years so nearly the same. "'How very good she must be,' said little Maida, quickly and softly, and a tear was sparkling on her eyelashes. "'She is indeed,' said Norman earnestly. "'I don't know what Pop would do but for her.' Mrs. Larpent asked kind questions whether his father's arm was very painful, and the hopes of its cure, and he felt as if she was a great friend already. Thence they came to books. Norman had not read for months past, but it happened that Meta was just now reading Woodstock, with which he was of course familiar, and both grew eager in discussing that and several others. Of one, Meta spoke in such terms of delight that Norman thought it had been very stupid of him to let it lie on the table for the last fortnight without looking into it. He was almost sorry to see his father and Mr. Rivers come in and hear the carriage ordered, but they were not off yet, though the rain was now only scotch mist. Mr. Rivers had his most choice little pictures still to display, his beautiful early Italian masters, finished like illuminations, and over these there was much lingering and admiring. Meta had whispered something to her governess, who smiled, and advanced to Norman. Meta wishes to know if your sister would like to have a few flowers, said she. No sooner said than done, the door into the conservatory was open, and Meta, cutting sprays of beautiful geranium, delicious heliotrope, fragrant calicanthus, deep blue tree violet, and exquisite hothouse ferns, perfect wonders to Norman, who, at each addition to the bouquet, exclaimed by turns, Oh, thank you, and how she will like it! Her father reached a magnolia blossom from on high, and the quick, warm, grateful emotion trembled in Dr. May's features and voice, as he said, It is very kind in you. You have given my poor girl a great treat. Thank you with all my heart. Margaret Rivers cast down her eyes, half-smiled, and shrank back, thinking she had never felt anything like the left-handed grasp, so full of warmth and thankfulness. It gave her confidence to venture on the one question on which she was bent. Her father was in the hall, showing Norman his great nymph, and lifting her eyes to Dr. May's face, then casting them down, she colored deeper than ever, as she said, in a stammering whisper, "'Oh, please, if you would tell me—do you think—is Papa very ill?' 
Dr. May answered in his softest, most reassuring tones, "'You need not be alarmed about him, I assure you. "'You must keep him from too much business,' he added, smiling. "'Make him ride with you, and not let him tire himself, "'and I am sure you can be his best doctor.' "'But do you think,' said Maida, earnestly looking up, "'do you think he will be quite well again?' "'You must not expect doctors to be absolute oracles,' said he. "'I will tell you what I told him. "'I hardly think his will ever be sound health again, "'but I see no reason why he should not have many years of comfort, "'and there is no cause for you to disquiet yourself on his account. "'You have only to be careful of him.' "'Meta tried to say thank you, but not succeeding, "'looked imploringly at her governess, who spoke for her. "'Thank you.' It is a great relief to have an opinion, for we were not at all satisfied about Mr. Rivers. A few words more, and Meta was skipping about like a sprite, finding a basket for the flowers. She had another shake of the hand, another grateful smile, and thank you from the doctor, and then, as the carriage disappeared, Mrs. Larpent exclaimed, What a very nice, intelligent boy that was! Particularly gentlemanlike, said Mr. Rivers. Very clever, the head of the school, as his father tells me, and so modest and unassuming, though I see his father is very proud of him. Oh, I am sure they are so fond of each other, said Maida. Didn't you see his attentive ways to his father at luncheon? And, Papa, I am sure you must like Dr. May, Mr. Wilmot's doctor, as much as I said you would. He is the most superior man I have met with for a long time, said Mr. Rivers. It is a great acquisition to find a man of such taste and acquirements in this country neighborhood, when there is not another who can tell a Claude from a Poussin. I declare, when once we began talking, there was no leaving off. I have not met a person of so much conversation since I left town. I thought you would like to see him, Meta. I hope I shall know the Miss May some time or other. That is the prettiest little fairy I ever did see, was Dr. May's remark as Norman drove from the door. "'How good-natured they are,' said Norman. "'I just said something about Margaret, and she gave me all these flowers. "'How Margaret will be delighted! "'I wish the girls could see it all.' "'So you got on well with the ladies, did you?' "'They were very kind to me. "'It was very pleasant,' said Norman, with a tone of enjoyment that did his father's heart good. "'I was glad you should come in. "'Such a curiosity shop is a sight.' and those pictures were some of them well worth seeing. That was a splendid Titian. That cast of the Palace of the Parthenon, how beautiful it was! I knew it from the pictures in Smith's Dictionary. Mr. Rivers said he would show me all his antiques if you would bring me again. I saw he liked your interest in them. He is a good, kind-hearted dilettante sort of an old man. He has got all the talk of the literary cultivated society in London, and must find it dullish work here. You liked him, didn't you? He is very pleasant. I found he knew my old friend Benson, whom I had not seen since we were at Cambridge together, and we got on that and other matters. London people have an art of conversation not learned here, and I don't know how the time slipped away, but you must have been tolerably tired of waiting. Not to signify, said Norman. I only began to think he must be very ill. I hope there is not much the matter with him. I can't say. I am afraid there is organic disease, but I think it may be kept quiet a good while yet. 
and he may have a pleasant life for some time to come, arranging his prince and petting his pretty daughter. He has plenty to fall back upon. Do you go there again? Yes, next week. I am glad of it. I shall like to have another look at that little Madonna of his. It is the sort of picture that does one good to carry away in one's eye. Way, stop! There's an old woman in here. It is too late for Fordholm, but these cases won't wait. He went into the cottage and soon returned, saying, Fine new blankets and a great kettle of soup, and such praises of the ladies at the Grange. And, at the next house, it was the same story. Well, tis no mockery now to tell the poor creatures they want nourishing food. Slices of meat and bottles of port wine rained down on Abbotstoke. A far more talkative journey than usual ensued. The discussion of the paintings and antiques was almost equally delightful to the father and son, and lasted till, about a mile from Stoneborough, they decried three figures in the twilight. Ha! How are you, Wilmot? So you braved the rain, Ethel. Jump in, called the doctor, as Norman drew up. I shall crowd you. I shall hurt your arm, Papa. Thank you. No, you won't. Jump in. There's room for three thread papers in one gig. Why, Wilmot, your brother has a very jewel of a squire. How did you fare? Very well on the whole, was Mr. Wilmot's answer, while Ethel scrambled in and tried to make herself small, an art in which she was not very successful, and Norman gave an exclamation of horrified warning as she was about to step into the flower-basket. Then she nearly tumbled out again in dismay, and was relieved to find herself safely wedged in, without having done any harm, while her father called out to Mr. Wilmot as they started, I say, you're coming back to tea with us. That cheerful tone and the kindness to herself were a refreshment and revival to Ethel, who was still sobered and shocked by her yesterday's adventure and by the sense of her father's sorrowful displeasure. Expecting further to be scolded for getting in so awkwardly, she did not venture to volunteer anything, and even when he kindly said, I hope you were prosperous in your expedition, she only made answer in a very grave voice, Yes, Papa, we have taken a very nice, tidy room. What do you pay for it? Four pence for each time. Well, here's for you, said Dr. May. It is only two guineas today. That banker at the Grange beguiled us of our time, but you had better close the bargain for him, Ethel. He will be a revenue for you for this winter at least. Oh, thank you, Papa, was all Ethel could say, overpowered by his kindness, and more repressed by what she felt so unmerited than she would have been by coldness. She said few words, and preferred listening to Norman, who began to describe their adventures at the Grange. All her eagerness revived, however, as she sprang out of the carriage full of tidings for Margaret, and it was almost a race between her and Norman to get upstairs and unfold their separate budgets. Margaret's lamp had just been lighted when they made their entrance, Norman holding the flowers on high. Oh, how beautiful, how delicious! For me? Where did you get them? From Abbotstoke Grange. Miss Rivers sent them to you. How very kind! What a lovely geranium! And oh, that fern! I never saw anything so choice. How came she to think of me? They asked me in because it rained, and she was making the prettiest things, leather leaves and flowers for picture frames. I thought it was work that would just suit you, 
and learn how to do it. That made them ask about you, and it ended by her sending you to Snowsgate. How very kind everybody is. Well, Ethel, are you come home too? Papa picked me up. Oh, Margaret, we have found such a nice room, a clean, sanded kitchen. You never saw such a conservatory. And it is to be let to us for four pence a time. The house is full of beautiful things, pictures and statues. Only think of a real Titian and a cast of the Apollo. Twenty children to begin with, and Richard is going to make some forms. Mr. Rivers is going to show me all his casts. Oh, is he? But only think how lucky we were to find such a nice woman. Mr. Wilmot was so pleased with her. Norman found one story at a time was enough, and relinquished the field, contenting himself with silently helping Margaret to arrange the flowers, holding the basket for her, and pleased with her gestures of admiration. Ethel went on with her history. The first place we thought of would not do at all. The woman said she would not take half a crown a week to have a lot of children stabbling about, as she called it, so we went to another house, and there was a very nice woman indeed, Mrs. Green, with one little boy whom she wanted to send to school, only it is too far. She says she always goes to church at Fordholm because it is nearer, and she is quite willing to let us have the room. So we settled it, and next Friday we are to begin. Papa has given us two guineas, and that will pay for, let me see, a hundred and twenty-six times, and Mr. Wilmot is going to give us some books, and Richie will print some alphabets. We told a great many of the people, and they are so glad. Old Granny Hall said, Well, I never, and told the girls they must be as good as gold now the gentlefolks were coming to teach them. Mr. Wilmot is coming with us every Friday as long as the holidays last. Ethel departed on her father's coming in to ask Margaret if she would like to have a visit from Mr. Wilmot. She enjoyed this very much, and he sat there nearly an hour, talking of many matters, especially the Coxmoor scheme, on which she was glad to hear his opinion at first hand. "'I am very glad you think well of it,' she said. "'It is most desirable that something should be done for those poor people, and Richard would never act rashly.' but I have longed for advice whether it was right to promote Ethel's undertaking. I suppose Richard told you how bent on it she was, long before Papa was told of it. He said it was her great wish, and had been so for a long time past. Margaret, in words more adequate to express the possession the project had gained of Ethel's ardent mind, explained the whole history of it. I do believe she looks on it as a sort of call, said she and I have felt as if I ought not to hinder her, and yet I did not know whether it was right, at her age, to let her undertake so much. I understand, said Mr. Wilmot, but from what I have seen of Ethel, I should think you had decided rightly. There seems to me to be such a spirit of energy in her, that if she does not act, she will either speculate and theorize, or pine and prey on herself. I do believe that hard, homely work, such as this school-keeping, is the best outlet for what might otherwise run to extravagance, more especially, as you say, the hope of it has already been an incentive to improvement in home duties. That I am sure it has, said Margaret. Moreover, said Mr. Wilmot, I think you were quite right in thinking that to interfere with such a design was unsafe 
I do believe that a great deal of harm is done by prudent friends, who dread to let young people do anything out of the common way, and so force their aspirations to ferment and turn sour for want of being put to use. Still, girls are told they ought to wait patiently, and not to be eager for self-imposed duties. I am not saying that it is not the appointed discipline for the girls themselves, said Mr. Wilmot. If they would submit and do their best, it would doubtless prove the most beneficial thing for them. But it is a trial in which they often fail, and I had rather not be in the place of such friends. It is a great puzzle, said Margaret, sighing. Ah, I dare say you are often perplexed, said her friend kindly. Indeed I am. There are so many little details that I cannot be always teasing Papa with, and yet which I do believe form the character more than the great events, and I never know whether I act for the best. And there are so many of us, so many duties, I cannot half attend to any. Lately I have been giving up almost everything to keep this room quiet for Norman in the morning, because he was so much harassed and hurt by bustle and confusion, and I found today that things have gone wrong in consequence. You must do the best you can and try to trust that while you work in the right spirit, your failures will be compensated, said Mr. Wilmot. It is a hard trial. I like your understanding it, said Margaret, smiling sadly. I don't know whether it is silly, but I don't like to be pitied for the wrong thing. My being so helpless is what everyone laments over, but, after all, that is made up to me by the petting and kindness I get from all of them. But it is the being mistress of the house, and having to settle for everyone, without knowing whether I do right or wrong, that is my trouble. I am not sure, however, that it is right to call it a trouble, though it is a trial. I see what you mean, said Margaret. I ought to be thankful. I know it is an honor, and I am quite sure I should be grieved if they did not all come to me and consult me as they do. I had better not have complained, and yet I am glad I did, for I like you to understand my difficulties. And indeed, I wish to enter into them, and do or say anything in my power to help you. But I don't know anything that can be of so much comfort as the knowledge that he who laid the burden on you will help you to bear it. Yes, said Margaret, pausing, and then, with a sweet look, though a heavy sigh, she said, It is very odd how things turn out. I always had a childish fancy that I would be useful and important, but I little thought how it would be. However, as long as Richard is in the house, I always feel secure about the others, and I shall soon be downstairs myself. Don't you think dear Papa in better spirits? I thought so today and here the doctor returned, talking of Abbotstoke Grange, where he had certainly been much pleased. It was a lucky chance, he said, that they brought Norman in. It was exactly what I wanted to rouse and interest him, and he took it all in so well that I am sure they were pleased with him. I thought he looked a very lanky specimen of too much leg and arm when I called him in, but he has such good manners, and is so ready and understanding, that they could not help liking him. It was fortunate I had him instead of Richard. Richie is a very good fellow, certainly, but he had rather look at a steam engine any day than at Raphael himself. Norman had his turn by and by. He came up after tea, reporting that Papa was fast asleep in his chair, and the others would go on about Coxmoor till midnight, 
if they were let alone, and made up for his previous yielding to Ethel by giving, with much animation and some excitement, a glowing description of the Grange, so graphic that Margaret said she could almost fancy she had been there. "'Oh, Margaret, I wonder if you ever will. I would give something for you to see the beautiful conservatory. It is a real bower for a maiden of romance, with its rich green fragrance in the midst of winter. It is like a picture in a dream. One could imagine it a fairyland, where no care or grief or weariness could come, all choice beauty and sweetness waiting on the creature within.' I can hardly believe that it is a real place and that I have seen it. Though you have brought these pretty tokens that your fairy is as good as she is fair, said Margaret, smiling. End of Part 1 Chapter 15 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona